Welcome to another episode of the Intersection Podcast, coming to you from the Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. I'm your host, Leo Haig. I'm a first-year MBA student at Scheller, and on this edition, I'm delighted to be joined by Devin Desai. Professor Desai has a distinguished career as an academic, a litigator, and an advisor to world-leading technology companies, including being the first academic research counsellor at Google, and he's now an associate professor at Scheller. And today, we are going to be discussing some of the thornier issues of the metaverse, because here at Scheller, we've been doing a series across our faculty, researchers and students looking into the metaverse to try to determine what's real, so the things that we should be getting excited about, and what's just more of a fad that we think will be here today and gone tomorrow. And I can think of no better person to dig into those issues with. But before we start grappling with the metaverse, Devin, welcome to the Intersection podcast. It'd be great if you could say a little bit about yourself and what you're up to currently at Scheller. Well, I mean, you covered a lot about my background. I still work heavily on the intersection of law, technology, ethics, and society. I'm, I'm also part of our program here, ML at GOTEC, which is machine learning at GOTEC as the associate director for law, policy, and ethics. So, you know, the metaverse presents all sorts of stuff to unpack, I guess, is one way to look at it. But what I try to do is bridge the technical side, really embedding with our machine learning and AI researchers to understand how they look at what they're creating and then connect that to legal and ethical issues. Because I think sometimes both sides don't really get what the other one's saying and that causes some trouble. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. As someone who's worked with technology, but on the regulatory side of it before, I think there's some really, really interesting and, and you know, quite challenging questions to get through when it comes to the metaverse. And I'm sure that we will dig into that um, today. But before we get started, I think we can probably all agree that the metaverse has become something of like a, a nebulous term and it's uh, lots of different types of technology has been thrown in there. Well, I, I'm going to go with useless <laughs> and messy. Yes. M is for meta, M is for messy, uh, M is for mayhem. And I think that's probably partially the fault of, you know, we can call them FFB, former Facebook, because as I think you know from what you've been talking about with others, right, the term, it, it traces back to Neil Stevenson. And, you know, just dawned on me as I was thinking about our talk today, part of my original work was on trademark law, and it led me to the, the deep theories of information and, and these other things. I'm surprised someone's not trying to cancel Metaverse, Meta as a trademark, because it's arguably generic. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's for someone else to do. But the key point, though, uh, are you familiar with Second Life? I think it would be good if you could uh, give us a little bit more detail. Well, it's ancient history by any technology terms, but I think Second Life dates back to almost 20 years ago. And I was just at a conference at, at Stanford, a workshop that a friend and colleague Mark Lemley and, and I hosted on the issues of abundance and scarcity in society and how technology affects both the creation of abundance, a, a deep economic question, or changes scarcity. And a, and a good friend, Josh Fairfield, is there, and he's been writing about this forever, and we were just going, here we go again. This is all the old stuff. Yeah. It, it really comes back to, oh, I want to have my brand here, or can I buy property on this virtual world, and what does that mean? Um, you can layer in some new currencies, certainly, but at, at bottom, people have been poking at this for quite some time. I think a fair number of people would agree Second Life was arguably the first realization of a version of the metaverse that Stevenson suggested. And I wasn't deep on that area of research, but it is intriguing to see it because you – 
I'm pretty certain there were copyright and trademark issues and very interesting property issues when it's no longer a graspable thing. And we're just seeing that yet again. That said, I think it's a mistake to think of it only as an alternate reality where people run around pretending that they're someone else and buy Gucci NFT'd bags and whatnot. Right. There's a lot more to it. Yeah, I think, you know, reflecting on my own interactions with technology, yeah, the idea of a virtual world is nothing new. You know, my generation would have grown up playing The Sims and we all just used to build houses in that. Mm, Precisely. Great example. And having an extension of that where you can actually pay for things and have it live in there and have property there is is probably nothing new. I guess we're seeing new or or advancements of technology within this that makes that all a bit more visual and Mm. real and and sensory like the kind of the augmented reality things that we're seeing headsets those types of things but i suppose if you look at the internet in general the internet was something that has existed in some shape or form since the 70s it only really started shaking out to what it looks like today the 1990s and even then there's been several layers of, of progression on top of that so I mean, from your perspective, Devin, um, I know that you've you've definitely touched on there that there isn't actually, if you've been around the space enough time, there's nothing actually new in, in the term. It might be different technologies. But what do you think is a little bit different about the discussion now can, compared to maybe 10 years ago? Well, I'd almost turn it back on you as someone who's done gaming, right? It seems to me, you know, are we a little closer to Stevenson vision? I th- if I remember, there were people who tried to live in the metaverse at almost all times and wore their early, his sort of prediction of sort of goggles and, and whatnot. I think their nickname was Gargoyles or something of that nature. And the last time I tried on a VR headset, which wasn't that long ago, actually, it was yeah. at one of the immersive, the Van Gogh thing here in Atlanta, it's still a very large and clunky headset. In fact, I can't personally envision wearing that for more than 10 minutes without my neck starting to feel quite tired. So I think we're far. You know, those who know more about VR, I may be wrong, but the technology itself, one, it just has to be lighter to be viable right. for, for a long immersion. But, you know, gamers, and when you're young, you'll do all sorts of horrible things to your body in terms of what we all do, right? Right now, we still have, there's a thing called texting neck, and COVID has only aggravated our tendency to, to bend our neck poorly and look at screens. So will there be a bunch of young folks who just get addicted enough to the fun to suffer through wearing, you know, five pounds or whatever it is on their head? I'm sure they will. But I still don't think that it's going to be long haul yet. So there's right there a technical gap. Right. I would imagine the next real leap to your analogy to the Internet to really make it much more ubiquitous and everyday is the hardware and software still have a ways to go. So I think that's going to be a big question. But it's better than it ever has been, right? The, the, the ability to wear those headsets and be immersed seems quite powerful. But the question is, what do we want to do with it? Do we want to just have yet another world of romping about? doing sims or maybe some sort of weird hands-on version of minecraft right yeah um so you know i don't know maybe it's some sort of minecraft but now we're moving our arms and we're pretending we had a workout because we wear little hand weights or something and there's haptic feedbacks i mean that could be interesting the most interesting thing to me isn't that it's the industrial applications so i'm seeing and hearing that people believe that this can be used for fantastic training the next step in simulators right i think there's pretty good evidence for for instance pilots time on a simulator really improves their ability to fly once they get airtime, and it's much less expensive. There was a study some few years ago now for surgeons where they had a very reactive, I guess you'd call it almost a robot, and those on the simulator simply got more time practicing compared to those who beg if, you know, I don't know if any fans still watch the odd resurrection and persistence of Grey's Anatomy, but they do capture 
if you're a resident, you're desperate to get in, to scrub in, to get your hands on a patient. Well, this changes everything. One, right, patients don't have to deal with someone who's learning. <laughs> and two, the sheer volume matters. So those sort of applications, I think, will be fascinating. And then there's an extension to that, I think, for education. One can imagine better training modules where the hands-on aspect, maybe if it is 15 minutes, as we said, okay, so that's clunky, but the ability to get in there for 15 minutes and really play with something in a virtual space that's much closer to a real space, that seems to be a potential that people should pay attention to. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of the hype has just been very much on the consumer side. So, you know, it's, oh, I can now go to a virtual concert in Fortnite. And it's debatable about how much of a you know an advancement that is from a user experience anyway. And so I can definitely understand some of your skepticism there. But I think, you know, what we are seeing, and it's interesting that you mentioned the headset aspect of it as well, is we're probably in this situation now where, in the past, hardware has developed really, really quickly and software has caught up. But now we're kind of seeing it flip to software is actually developing really, really quickly and we need to get much, much better hardware. But there was an interesting experiment just done recently of someone who did try and spend their whole day mm. in you know virtual world. And physically, they were not up to the task for the very reason that you mentioned. It was such a pain and drain on the, on the eyes and neck. Yeah. It's just not possible. But from a industrial perspective yes i can see huge you know, levels of yeah. um, excitement there it's maybe not the the headline grabbing stuff but that's really where you get human and technological advancement is from those sorts of things if i love your concert example i mean one of the areas i've studied amongst several other people is the effect on technology and entertainment and music and film so one of the the ways to think of the music industry is it was very much up against it they were suing everyone but really what probably saved the music industry was the technology itself evolved, right? Streaming comes along. In fact, its lowest overall wealth generation or money was roughly 2014 for the entire industry, which is basically right when streaming started. And this past year, they've hit new records. Who gets that money? I'm not positive how they're dividing up that pie. And certainly smaller artists may have reasons to say, listen, we're still not getting paid well. But music arguably for some has become almost a loss leader. Right? But the goal was, oh, well, go to a concert. Of course, COVID messed with that. But you know, if there's a great virtual experience that now allows an artist to say, hey, I will perform possibly at a club live and I'll charge X. But if you want the virtual experience because I'm in Atlanta and you happen to live in, you know, who knows, more remote town, as it were, and there's a different fee, that could be fantastic for artists, right? To, have someone say, wow, I was at the concert in a more immersive way and got that full concert experience, at least a slice of that, could be good for the consumer as an experience. It could be good for the artist. That would be lovely. But yes, the whole day, frankly, even a whole concert, especially if you're trying to bash your head about an old school headbanger, I think that that's going to go flying. But, <laughs> but you know, someone will figure that out. I think it's an interesting example as well, because you do have to get the, the balance right here, because I remember watching the NBA playoffs you know, mm. about... 18 months, a couple of years ago when they did it in the bubble in Orlando. Mm. And fans couldn't be there, but you could have the Oculus headset experience where you were courtside, which seems fantastic. But I think you want to be careful that you don't create a situation where that becomes the desired way mm. to for everyone to experience this because it will reduce the spectacle for everyone. You have to have an in-person element and that kind of emotion and energy in the audience to feed off. Otherwise, what are we watching? So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how it all pans Those will out. probably bark at differentiate, yeah. I think. Just like the, no, the notion would be whether a VR experience or augmented reality experience 
would really capture what it is to be in the stands. I mean, unless you can also simulate, you know, the loud jerk opposing team guy yelling in your ear and people spilling beer on you at home and all of the things that go with the live game. I think they will be different, yeah. frankly. But you're right. This is always the question is they, the fear of most entertainment industries is, oh, that will substitute for us, right? Movies are certainly worried about that right now. It's very hard to get people back into a theater because the cost of a great big TV in one's house has become quite low and things stream. So, you know, but that's just part of life and business and the game, as it were. I don't think that we'll get to the point. It'll be a question of price, certainly. Okay. I do think it would be great if we had better ways to let people get there in person as well. But, you know, we'll see. Indeed. Well, exactly. It's still very much a, a contested space. And, and on that note, Devin, um, as a, a legal and ethics expert, I wanted just to dig into some of the kind of potential regulatory challenges you see around the metaverse. You know, when we saw the internet really take off in the 1990s, obviously, you know, that was something that really affected Microsoft, particularly with their antitrust issues. We've both seen the kind of the rise of social media and the tech giants and, and a lot of issues there that still have yet to be resolved in terms of not only antitrust, but safety on the platform, misinformation, who really is in charge of that and whose role it is to manage that and ensure that you know, things that don't happen offline can't now happen in an online world just because we have a different medium. So for these businesses that are investing heavily in the metaverse space, you know, from a consumer perspective in particular, so the the likes of Microsoft who are getting into gaming and, and Facebook as well as, as they kind of push new realms for people to get involved in their platform. Do you see risks posed to, to these companies for getting involved or do you think ultimately you know they can just kind of forge ahead and the regulation may or may not catch up with them later? I think given the current state of affairs, not much will change. You'll play your game. Others will play their games. They'll log in. They'll agree to terms of service, and off they'll go. And then, as always, someone will say, well, it ought not look like that. Whether the company will respond or not will depend on what the company wants to do. See also Twitter, right? Yeah, the EU is trying to do more and more regulation. So far, most of their attempts at regulation have had great aspirations, but as far as I know, the actual usage and enforcement has been low. So it's a very interesting moment in certainly U.S. legal history because the temptation or the desire to take a private entity and say you have to somehow manage it in a certain way is super high. It doesn't seem to run that well with my reading of what most of the history of U.S. telecom law is. There was a small period where there was sort of a detente but that was when we had very few media companies, massive ones. When I was a kid, right, it was three major networks. Fox News was the butt of David Letterman's jokes, and some of your listeners, including you, have no idea who these people are. But that was it. And then Fox kept growing, and Fox News comes, and so there's four major networks. But there was a period where if you had the presidential debates as well as the primaries leading up to it, that's all you got, and that was part of the bargain. It was everyone if they wanted to tune in. But once you have cable and you start to expand the ability for people to watch what they want, the argument of scarcity, which was you get to reach the great American public through your mainstream commerce, and once in a while you do some public service, went away. And contrary to what people think, this, has been, this started in the 70s. So what we're seeing online is certainly a deeper, arguably more powerful, but it's simply the ethics of the business, whether it wants to behave a certain way and cover certain things or not. And the newsroom, once they found out they could make money on news, shifted and started to say, well, instead of 
real or serious news. We also want the stuff that will titillate people because we get our eyeballs. And that's been true in television and radio far before the internet came along and allegedly broke us. Does the internet and its tendency to do these things amplify those tendencies? Sure. But that's human nature. So, for instance, you know, people say, oh, well, I don't know if I want broccoli. What I don't know, but I have an instinct on, is people identify with whatever ideological system they want, but let's say deeply, if they claim they want to have their voice heard in equal to the others, I don't think they actually want to then be told, well, you'll get 50% your view and 25% another view with which you disagree and 25% another view you disagree, let alone how many percentages we should, quote, mandate. More sad, there's some interesting work that was done a little while ago. There's some evidence that people engage with that which they disagree with. However, what they seem to do is simply pass it on and be outraged by it as opposed to being, quote, persuaded. So returning to the metaverse, will people possibly, again, even more in that sense, say, wow, I can indoctrinate and give people an immersive experience that will really influence how they do things. Technology is ambipotent. It is relatively neutral, good or bad. This sort of technology, could it be perverted? Absolutely. Will we manage that? I doubt it. Because <laughs> it's just where I am. I doubt it. I mean, because uh, I guess the, is, the argument could be, well, you know, if you got in there and regulated now, perhaps you could at least kind of draw the terms of engagement and stop these things from happening. But, we'll, but Tell me what you think that regulation would actually look well, like. Well, that was always a debate. And I think the issue has been, as we've seen with social media, is you get people trying to create laws around this after the fact, but even when they can see the technology in front of them, find it difficult to understand and draw the, the correct parameters around it. So I think we will probably end up seeing something similar to what we've seen with social media, which is a big kind of drive and uptake of different kind of uses of, of this. And... You know, we're already seeing it now, like Roblox, for example, has 202 million child users, and that's a gaming platform that uses lots of augmented reality. I doubt it's on the minds, really, of that many legislators at the moment, yeah. but it, it will get there once there's an issue. And then so I think you've raised two good things. One, there's a chance, if it's relatively real-time all the time, in whatever augmented meta thing that happens, perhaps a community will emerge, right? Community guidelines should have some power. And if people are saying, listen, that's just not the sort of talk and behavior we want, there's some hope there, right? Yeah. Conferences have started to say, this is what's appropriate behavior, this is what's not, and seem to have done relatively well. Does that, the unfortunate word, scale? Don't know, but there's a chance there, I think. For children, I do think Congress and others should be able to quickly move forward because we have a history of knowing, for instance, we regulate ads to children quite properly. And we've had issues before with in-app purchases with children. So if we think about how psychologically powerful and immersive environment would be, I have no trouble with someone saying, all right, given that, and really this should be bipartisan, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, as a regulatory issue, if you want to have something aimed at kids like this, maybe there's a maximum amount of time. At least I see nothing wrong with exploring that question because the brain itself, we're still understanding how it develops, but our cognitive powers and our ability to regulate ourselves, the frontal lobe area, I've heard that it doesn't really sort of congeal, as it were, or come to proper balance or relatively full balance until 23 to 25, maybe as old as 27, depending on the person. Yeah. So in high neuroplasticity, if you're a kid, if we want to say maybe we need to have some serious rules about that, that's certainly a fair question in my world. Big difference, of course, once you're over 18 in this country. But leading up to that, yeah, I think that's an issue. Possibly even 21, though I'm sure the industry and others and some people right now are going, oh, we got to go after that guy. 
But those are great questions. I think it, it also, though, ignores the non-commercial side, right? The danger is we focus on all that and somehow inadvertently sweep up what we were talking about before. The absolutely positive aspects of using ever-increasing ability to simulate for healthcare, for manufacturing, for possibly even just good old-fashioned job training, right? It may be that someone who, let's say, right, COVID, all sorts of jobs all over the place have gone you know, left, right, up, down, non-existent. Someone wants to reinvent themselves. Well, they have to go to school. But if part of that schooling could be a really great immersive situation where education time itself drops and quality of knowledge and ability to go out and fix whatever it is, an HVAC system or a particular automobile or high-end aircraft goes up, well, that's tremendous. And so I think the regulation, to your point, might be much more important in a purely commercial entertainment sphere, interestingly, than these other aspects. And I'm more excited for the other aspects, to be completely honest. Someone fighting over, were you allowed to create a virtual Ferrari or not? I know this area. There's some fascinating laws that have gone around over and over on cases about my work on 3D printing would be similarly related. Can you now render X because it was someone else's design and there may be a copyright on this design or a trademark here, and I mean, on the plans of the design. Yeah, people will sort that out nicely. But uh, in some ways, I find it all sort of, okay, you're, we're still running around looking at ourselves. If you fan of Kraftwerk? A little, band, a little. Yeah, the band yes. Hall. Yeah, yeah. All listeners, go look at Hall of Mirrors. <laughs> right, those guys were way ahead on all this. Just sort of, oh, we're all staring at ourselves in this techno world. So that's even before Stevenson. And I think that is a really nice segue to where I wanted to finish our discussion um, today, Devin, because all that you're laying out there around the different engineering or, you know, biotechnology, you know, even that kind of the aerospace sector, those sorts of things, they're all sectors where Georgia Tech is really, really strong. And, you know, coupled with our technology expertise and the resources that we have at our disposal here i can see lots and lots of potential ways to really help our students lean into that and work directly from an r&d perspective on these new capabilities and you know hopefully bring some really exciting um, capabilities and technologies to market so do you see us as an institution kind of leaning more heavily into that side and, and helping bring that next generation of, of technology to market you know whether it's explicitly because someone feels they have to help develop the metaverse, I don't know, and it may not be the right question, to be honest. I think it's inevitable because of what we do, yeah. right? We have pioneers in AI on vision systems. We have pioneer engineering. We have one of the great, the Georgia Tech professional education arm is fantastic at finding new ways to reach students of, of all sorts of ages and needs. So I see us doing this because it's just what we do, to be honest. Um, the convergence will happen because someone's going to do incredible breakthrough research on, wow, I was able to create a better camera, right? Or a headset that's smaller because I'm really good at that piece of it. Or it could be that we have three different labs working at what we need, you know, slightly better software, slightly better sensor. And then material science might say, oh, well, I can lighten that up and do all this and boom, off we go. I think also as a practical matter, more and more people are using these technologies even for development, right? Not just training. So you can faster iterate what would the next piece of equipment that might be useful in a meta or augmented reality look like. Well, I'm hoping and guessing that most of our, our engineering labs are already like, well, we should be doing that anyway. Not only 
to develop them, but also to use them for whatever they're doing next, the, the next cutting edge thing in aerospace, for instance. In some ways, it's sort of the next wave of the work I looked at on 3D printing for its intersection with society, because if you can virtually create in a robust way a model and test it, well, look at that. I mean, the iteration goes through the roof. To your point, that's closer to what's exciting about early internet, is we're getting that cycle where the ratchet goes faster and faster, and the cost is actually lower, and the quality is each time perhaps an exponential factor better. Those intersections, thoroughly exciting. So if someone wants to say that's what they mean by metaverse, absolutely, hallelujah. And instead of, you know, bad M adjectives, then it's like, you know, merry metaverse or something better than that, because I just came up with that horrible <laughs> uh, attempted alliteration. And I do think that at Georgia Tech, again, we do this, and I'm, I don't know enough about how all of our great people work, but I would hope we're looking at it both directly and indirectly because of the intersection of factors, as you pointed out, that really went into taking the internet into a commercial and then a full-blown, beyond commercial, just embedded part of how we do things. Well, the good news is, as well, Devin, is I've seen this already taking place. So I'm in the Tiger program oh, right. as part of the MBA um, here at Georgia Tech. And we have our PhDs and MBAs working on essentially how you can run a agricultural production line completely, you know, remotely. So that is using lots of different types of technology there, but, you know, augmented reality is very much the central point of that. So I don't want to say too much more as I I don't want people stealing their proprietary um, information and technology there, but it is something that's already been looked at. I love it, right? Because people forget how important agriculture is. And so when you say people are realizing this could be a production enhancer, even in something that people think of as, you know, tractors and dirt and whatnot. That's it. That's exactly why it is thrilling to see some of this. In fact, I was telling someone there's an odd show to some, but I rather find it soothing on um, Saturday and Sunday morning on PBS. I think it's called the Georgia Farm Report or Georgia Farm Monitor. And it's basically the state of agriculture, which is a huge industry in Georgia. It might be the number one industry, if I'm not mistaken. But it shows people how technology is helping with better farming, more organic farming, higher production yields, questions of ethics in terms of the treatment of animals or you know, use of pesticides and fertilizers. So t- when you tell me there might be even better ways to augment how we produce in healthy ways that are also efficient, you know, food, anything the Ukraine war has shown again, food is a massive question. And so I love hearing that what you're saying, which is without giving away something, Anyone who's in that space should not think, oh, that's not for us. They should be the other side, which is, oh, that could be a multiplier that we need. Well, thank you, Devin. I think that has been really interesting and, and very useful for me personally in debunking things that, you know, essentially just a new side of the same coin, but, you know, to things that are actually really exciting technology developments that we can look forward to in the not too distant future so really appreciate your time um, and giving up to, to be part of our metaverse series here and thank you so much again Devin for giving up your time to be here today no thank you Leo and uh, thanks to everyone for listening